Well, good morning again to you. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, grab them and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. We're glad that you're here today. If this is your first time, we'd love to connect with you. We have a table out in the foyer. We'd love to connect and give you a free gift. As you're turning there, uh, we've been walking through this series called Jesus Is. We actually began this series on Easter Sunday with Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist had been doubting whether Jesus was really the Messiah, had a momentary lapse, but he was... We talked about how doubt is often friends with faith. And so we discussed all the ins and outs of that. We've talked about how Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and how he's super, is, is, is greater than all the, the Sabbath rules and, and laws that the Pharisees had put in. And all of this is a reality that we've been seeing in Matthew 12, that there's been a contrast happening. The contrast is really simple. The contrast is, of who Jesus really is and was versus what people expected him to be like. It all comes down to an expectation that the Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders had in that day of what Jesus was going to be like versus who he actually was. It just didn't comply with what they had expected him to be like. Now, this is true for all of us. When when our expectations are being met, we're generally in a good mood. I mean, when our expectations are not met, we generally get a little, a little off-put. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but, but sometimes you, you walk into a job that you have an expectation for, and it's not long before you begin to realize this job is not what I expected it to be like. And all of a sudden, now you're going into work grumpy, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're, you're angry at everybody around you, and, and you're just mad at the world because your expectations have not been met. This happens in marriage. Okay, for one person in this room. But you have an expectation of what marriage is going to be like, and then all of a sudden you, you, you realize, this is not what I expected, and in my case, it's better than I expected. Amen, right, guys? Come on. All right. <clears throat> now, kids, cars, the list goes on and on. Of all the things that we build up expectations for and have, and then when they're not met, sometimes we just get a little disgruntled, right? And this was happening with the Pharisees. And, and what happens when you're not, your expectations are being met? It usually is seen from what you say. The Pharisees were doing this. We learned in Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37, that Jesus is going to say to them, I know what you're thinking because you're telling me and you're doing it. Like, I know that you're embittered. I know that you're angry. I know that you're mad because what's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. And so when your expectations are off in your heart, it will be seen clearly in what you say and in what you do expectations weren't being met. And so Jesus calls them out on this reality, and they don't like that. In fact, they've begun to plot a way in which they can kill Jesus. This is how enraged they are. This is how off their expectations were. We're going to see in Matthew chapter 12 today a kind of a conclusion to this section of Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew and this series called Jesus Is. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be Matthew 12, start in verse 38. We'll actually go all the way back to verse 6 in a minute. Don't go there yet. But in verse 38, we're going to be, if you're there, will you say word? 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up, stand up and at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is here. Now look, if you're somebody like me who loves God's word and reads from the table of contents all the way to the maps and the maps all the way to the table of contents, it's not hard and it often happens among preaching or even in just Bible teaching or just in your Bible reading that you will read something and you'll develop an application from the text, but it's a secondary application, not the primary application. Now, secondary applications are not bad, they're not evil, they're not wicked. They're actually good things, but they're not the primary application of a text. Let me help you understand what I'm saying. Here, we'll reference a story, a story of Jonah. And I've preached through Jonah multiple times. I've taught through Jonah. You've heard stories about Jonah. And typically, in the story of Jonah, we gather up multiple secondary applications to Jonah. They're not bad, but I just want to show you, and I'm going to do it through alliteration, so it'll make some of you happy. But we know the story of Jonah. Jonah disobeyed, right? Jonah disobeyed. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, and where does he go? Not Nineveh. I don't care where it was. He didn't go where he was supposed to go. Go to Nineveh and preach that they need to repent, and he says, I'll pass, and I'm going to go somewhere different. So he gets on a boat, he pays his fare, and he disobeys. So we could do a whole sermon on what happens when you disobey the Lord. Is that a bad application from Jonah? No, it's a great application. It's just secondary to the primary application. Jonah was disobedient. And because Jonah was disobedient, Jonah was disciplined. That's another D. Jonah was disciplined. So what happens? Jonah's on the boat. He's with all these other guys. And all of a sudden, a storm comes. And because there was a big storm, they all begin to look at each other and say, who did this? Who disobeyed or who has sin on this boat? We got to figure it out. And so they're all figuring it out. And Jonah's like, man, look at that paint on that shiplap. It's great. So it's next level joke, but it went right over your head. It was so good. So he, he's disciplined. So what happens is they, they gather together. And finally, Jonah goes, hey, I, I'm the guy. And he says, throw me over. And no, 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 let's throw everything else, all of our food, all of our whatevers, all of our trinkets, let's throw those over and see if we can survive. They don't survive in the sense but until they throw Jonah out of the boat. And part of his discipline is that he finds himself, by God's inconspicuous providence, which means that he was working, he swallowed him up in a giant fish. It's in that giant fish where as Jonah's been disobedient and Jonah is now being disciplined, 
He comes to a place where he's confessing his sin, repenting of him not going to Nineveh, going to not Nineveh. He's confessing that his sin has impacted other people on the boat. They're now, they're now at no food. I mean, they're in trouble as well. And he's stuck in this for three days and three nights. And eventually, out of the repentance of his heart, he is discharged out of the fish. By God's grace and mercy and sovereignty, he's discharged onto the sandbank of Nineveh, of where he was supposed to go in the first place. And so Jonah gets up and he is deliberate. So he's been disobedient, he has been disciplined, he's been discharged, and now he's deliberate. How is he deliberate? He deliberately preaches the message that he was told to go preach. He goes and he preaches judgment of God is coming. Now, I don't know if you were around in the 70s. Many of you were. But there's an old sermon from Billy Graham from the 70s at Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock or leave it is what I say. But he was in Lubbock, Texas. And he's preaching and the stadium is full of people. And he preached on the, the story of Jonah. And he made this point. He, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here. He said, Jonah preached wrath and judgment and some 600 to 700,000 people repented. Yeah, but I have a chance today to preach about God's love and grace and mercy to you. And the question will be, what if you repented? Now just imagine for a second, it's hard for us to fathom 600 or 700,000 people, but just, just think for a moment, if Washington, D.C., which by the way, that's the population of D.C., if Washington, D.C., everybody in D.C. repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus, what would be different in our country today? That, that by the way, cuts across both party lines. So before you think that I'm saying something I'm not. What if everybody in Henderson County repented of their sin and believed and trusted in Jesus? What would happen in our schools and in our workplaces and in our restaurants and in our businesses? What would happen if you repented? And today you get a chance to hear of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. What would happen? He was disobedient. He was disciplined. He was discharged. He was deliberate, and then he was discouraged. Now, look, I, I get thrilled when a half of a person repents of their sin on a Sunday morning. 600 to 700,000 people repented of their sin and believed in the God of all gods was going to come and rain down wrath on them if they did not repent, and they repented, and the revival takes place. A whole city repents, and the reaction of Jonah is disappointment and discouragement. The secondary application. Why was he discouraged? Because he knew God was merciful. He knew God was graceful. And God forgave them just like he knew they would do. And he was not happy about that at all. It's a secondary application. Now I've gone through that whole exercise because none of what I've said to you so far is bad. It's all good application from the book of Jonah. But in Matthew 12, crystal clear comes to us of what the point of the story of Jonah really is. It's to point us to Jesus. See, I have a conviction. It's how I read the Bible, hermeneutics, okay? It's how you read and interpret the Bible. I believe the Old Testament is propelling us and pushing us to look for and look to Jesus. I come to this conclusion because Jesus in Luke 24 says that very thing. 
I believe that because even Paul will tell us, how was Abraham saved? How was righteousness given to Abraham? Not because Abraham was righteous, but because righteousness was credited to him because he trusted in the promise of the one who was to come, which was Jesus. I believe the New Testament, all the New Testament reflects back upon Jesus. And even Revelation looks forward to the second coming of Jesus. I believe good Bible reading and interpretation centers on Jesus. So the story of Jonah is not about Jonah and not about you when you disobey. Not about you when you're disciplined or when you're, uh, you're uh, uh, discharged. deliberate or discouraged it's about Jesus and Jesus shows us this all throughout the gospel of Matthew chapter 12 look at verse 6 Jesus tells us that he's greater than the temple look what it says he says I tell you that something greater than the temple is here all of this was in reference to the fact that Jesus was entering into the temple and healing people, the blind and the lame and the mute he was healing people and they were all up in arms but Jesus is telling them I am greater than the temple. Why would he say that? Now, it's hard for us because we live in a post-temple world. We don't understand sacrifices. We don't understand how that system worked because we don't have that system today. But when somebody would sin, a sacrifice, a substitute was made on the behalf of the person who had sinned. This began actually all the way into the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a sacrifice made, they were clothed, and that blood satisfied, that aroma satisfied the, the Lord. And so you have this sacrificial system put into place. And what people would do is they would look among their own flocks and that they would bring the purest and, 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 and holiest of their flock and they would bring it as a altar to the altar of sacrifice and the, the priest would then take that sacrifice and the blood would be poured out and then they would be forgiven of their sin. This was just the system. And then the priests got a little uh, entrepreneurial. They said, look, if we provide all the pure sheep and goats and cows and everything else, if we provide that, they can just pay us and then they don't have to worry about having a pure sheep among themselves. And over time, that was a great system until they began to be like a professional sports organization that upcharges you for that cheese nachos. You been to a pro sporting event lately? I mean, that cheese, you could, buy 80, you could buy a pallet of melted cheese from Sam's for the price of one nachos at a sporting event. It's an upcharge. So what was happening? They were upcharging people and condemning people. And so based on your wealth and based on the type of sin you had, they would charge you a particular amount and then make you buy a bigger animal. And then you'd have to sacrifice that animal. And all this was in the system, which ultimately leads to Jesus coming in. And one of the first things he does is he turns the tables over and says, money changers in the court. Jesus is coming onto the scene and saying, there's someone greater here. I'm greater than the temple. Now think about this. The temple had a barrier to where all the unholy people were. There was a curtain, and then you could enter into where the sacrifices were made. And only those that were holy and only those that were blameless were able to enter into that tent. But when Jesus was on the cross, at the finale of the, him being on the cross, at the end of it all, the, the veil of the temple tore in two from top to bottom. And it was, what it was symbolizing was the elimination of a barrier between you being able to enter into the Holy of Holies with the Lord. Because he was no longer going to be confined to a place, but now he was going to be in our 
hearts. Jesus is saying, I'm better and greater than the temple. I'm a better and greater priest. You think that your sacrifices are what pleases the Lord. And he's saying, I'm looking for people whose heart are after me. So Jesus tells them there's someone better and greater than the temple. But then look at verse 38, which is the primary text for us to consider today. They come and they say, teacher, we want, boy, does that sound like a child? We want to see a sign from you. Now, when they say teacher, they're being sarcastic and they're being hypocritical. They don't really think he's a good teacher. They don't like Jesus. They use teacher in a more of a slang form of like, yeah, yeah, come on, teacher, show us something else. They went jersey on him, I guess. Show us something else. So they're, teacher, show us something. Now, when they say a sign, look, Jesus had given them many signs, hadn't he? He had healed people. He had fed 5,000. Lazarus had come out of the grave. He's done all kinds of things. And none of that was good enough for them. The implication here is not the fact that they asked for a sign. It's the kind of sign that they were demanding. The kind of sign that they were demanding was something extravagant. They wanted a fireworks show. They wanted the moon to stand still. They wanted it to become nighttime when it was daytime. They wanted Jesus to do something extraordinary, levitate. They wanted him to do something well beyond that he would not do. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't do whatever we demand him to do. You realize that, don't you? Like I think sometimes we get in this mentality that if I say in the name of Jesus, Jesus is gonna do whatever I want him to do. You don't know any better than Jesus. And so they say, teacher, we wanna see a sign and what does he give them an answer? What does he say? Look at the next verse. It says in verse 39, he answered them, you're evil and you're an adulterous generation. You demand a sign. But look what he says. No. I need you to hear this. It's a secondary application, but Jesus has every right to tell you no. And I don't think we like that. And some of us are disenfranchised with Jesus because we asked him for something and he didn't do it and we didn't like the answer. We asked him to do something and he didn't do it because it wasn't part of his will and you're now angry and mad and bitter at God because he didn't do what you wanted him to do as if God is a Coke machine that you put a dollar of prayer in and you're supposed to get a Coke zero sugar. That's not how this works, folks. We have in our family at the end of every school year a yes day. Have you heard of yes day? It's where within reason our children are, can, are able to ask whatever they want and we, can, we will generally, within reason, there are margins to this. There is a budget to it, but we will generally say yes. For instance, may we have ice cream for breakfast? Yes. I call that Mondays, right? <laughs> but yes. Can we have uh, can, we go, can we go to get a, a sonic drink? Oh, absolutely. Get two of them if you want. Right? Can we go to the zoo to see some relatives? Yes, we'll go to the zoo. It'll be great. Right? All these things, right? We're just ha- and I'm kidding. But we're having all this fun. We're just enjoying it. But on, on the reality of it all, there's not a particular yes day that Jesus gives us. Jesus has the right to tell us No. And here, Jesus looks at them and says, I'm not going to do, I'm not a, 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 an actor who just does whatever he is told to on demand. That's not how this 
works. And he calls them evil and he calls them adulterous. Why are they evil? Because they take what should be good and they twist it. That's what evil is, isn't it? Taking something that is good and twisting it for evil. And then adulterous, adulterous meaning they are taking that which was sacred, a covenant, and they're cheating. Their, their idolatry has led them down a path to where they're lusting after and wanting something other than God himself. They're evil, twisting, and they're adulterous. They're rebelling against the Lord. And he says, I will not give you a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, why is this important? He tells us in the next verse, because Jonah spent three days in a big fish. And he will spend three days in a ground. I see the men of Nineveh stand up in judgment of this generation and condemn it because they repented of Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. He's getting at, in verse 39, I mean in verse 40, he's saying that Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days, just like I'll be in the belly of the ground for three days. Now listen here. There are some that would say the story of Jonah is an allegory, that it didn't really happen. There's no way a man could be in a fish. There's no way that could happen. It's illogical. Well, Jesus references Jonah's story not as an allegory and not as a fable and not as a cute little story, a bedtime. He relates to it in a literal sense. Therefore, we believe that Jonah was a real man. Jonah was really in the belly of a fish and Jonah was really spit up and discharged out of that fish and that is the truth and we're gonna stand by it. Now, in all of that, we believe that because Jesus himself equates going into the fish like him going into the ground. And we know for a verifiable, verifiable fact that Jesus not just went into the ground, but he was resurrected out of the tomb and he ascended into heaven. And one day he's going to return. If the resurrection did not happen, we should just go by a boat and pick up fishing because we have no hope. And so he says to them, look, you need to understand the men of Nineveh are going to stand up in judgment. And they're going to judge this generation. They're actually going to condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and something greater than Jonah is here. What is Jesus getting at? He's saying, here, the, 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 the people of Nineveh, they were not Israelites. They were, they were Gentiles. And at the judgment, they're going to rise up. Whereas they heard the preaching of Jonah, they repented, you're hearing my preaching, you're seeing me do these works, you're looking at me, you're touching me, having conversation with me, you're God's people, and yet you're rejecting me. They repented, but you reject. And so they will rise up and judge you. In part, Jesus is better and greater than the temple because the sacrifices are no longer needed. In part, Jesus is the better and greater prophet because he fulfilled all those things that were being prophesied about the Messiah. But then third, Jesus gives another example. He says in verse 42, it says the queen from the south. Now who is the queen from the south? Now you gotta understand, you gotta read 1 Kings chapter 10, also in the book of Chronicles, there's this moment where this woman, the queen of Sheba comes. Queen of Sheba. We don't know a lot about her, but we know that she was very wealthy. And she comes and she's heard reports about King Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. David was the great king that was anointed to be king over Saul. And so Saul dies, David becomes king, and his son Solomon follows him. 
David had made plans to build the temple to God, but God restrained him from being able to do that because of his sin. And so Solomon then has these plans and he executes those plans. And God comes to Solomon. He's not the blue genie from Aladdin, but God comes and says, whatever you want, I will give it to you. And it was somewhat of a test for Solomon. Solomon doesn't ask for a new camel. Solomon doesn't ask for wife. He doesn't ask for kids. He doesn't ask for a new house. He says, God, give me wisdom so that I can know the right thing and the wrong thing to do. Give me wisdom. And God doubly honors him. And so he gives him wealth and riches and expansive kingdom. And so the queen of Sheba hears all this about King Solomon, and she wants to go investigate for herself. She goes on a quest. She comes up to King Solomon. She interviews his servants. She interviews his employees. She interviews all of the people that she can interview. She observes Solomon make decisions, and she walks away astonished at how her expectations weren't met. He far exceeded her expectations. And so she publicly bows a knee to Solomon and she gives him a a great offering and in fact will over a period of years keep sending offerings to Solomon of wealth and gold and silver and she will do this for a long period of time. Jesus says, if this woman who is a pagan unholy, unrighteous Gentile is able to recognize when God's hand is on somebody, she will rise up at the judgment seat with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is right here. Jesus is the better and greater king. This goes all the way back to the beginning of Matthew when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, anytime you hear a sermon, at some point you're going to say, so what? So what that Jesus is the better and greater temple? So what that Jesus is the better and greater prophet? So what that Jesus is the better and greater king? That doesn't impact my marriage, or that doesn't impact my kids, or that doesn't impact my work. Help me. Give me an application to all of this. Well, here's a little bit of what's going on. If you think that Jesus is not the better and greater temple, you're going to think that the more you give, the more you do, the more you get your life and act together, the more you you do, 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 the ladder you're climbing, all those things, you're going to think that sacrifice is what's going to make you pleasing before the Lord. And Jesus says to you, no, only those who trust in me for their salvation According to Colossians 1.22, they'll become holy and blameless and right before me. So all those things that you've done, that you've done in front of other people, so that they may see your good works, and you've done them to glory in yourself. Jesus says, no, I'm the better and greater temple. It's not doing those things. I'm the one who satisfied those sacrifices. Some of you think, I have a better idea of what should happen in my life. Prophecy is a declaring of truth. So you think that you can see far beyond what you can see. And so you've centered your whole life around your opinions and your ways. And so you've developed this mentality that 
you know better and you should be able to tell others how to live their life. But Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 I'm the better and greater prophet. I know the way that you should live. I know the way you should go if you would just trust and obey. If you think you're, you're the king. And this is where most of us really are. We want to be the captains of our own ship. We want to direct our own steps. We want to tell God what we should do and what he should do in our lives. You want to get in trouble, tell God what you won't do. We always tell our, those that we're baptizing, are you willing to go anywhere or do anything he calls you to do? And we ask that because it's a question about submission to the kingship of the Lord. It's a question about, are you really going to do whatever he calls you to do? Because here's what happens. We will say that, but in our minds we're going, except for that. Lord, I'll never move to Lubbock, Texas. For 12 months, we lived there. Lubbock or leave it. We left. Lord, I'll never live near Houston, Texas. We're there for eight years. I'll never, I'll never live in East Texas. Oops. I'm beginning to pray, Lord, I'll never live in the Rockies, right? The problem with those kinds of prayers is that we think we're the king. And we think we can say, okay, Jesus, now you can take the wheel, as if we were ever holding the wheel. You were not ever holding the wheel. I'm sorry, as catchy as the song is. You were dead in the back of the hearse with no life. And Jesus comes and says, I want to give you life. If you just submit to me, is this not what he says in Luke 9, 23? If anybody wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's about submitting to the one who is the greater sacrifice, the one who is the greater prophet, and the one who is the greater king. Someone who is greater is among you. So you begin to think about application from a, a text like this, that Jesus is greater. How does that impact my everyday? Well, there's two things, I think. Two things. The first thing is to repent. This is the way for Christians. When we sin, and you will, you repent. And if your sin does not bother you, you need to repent of that. When the things that you watch don't bother you, it should cause you to grieve. Because the acceptance of that kind of sin will only deaden your heart to the things of the Lord. And so often we will come and we will just have a superficial reality of Christianity. It's not real. It's just a game that over time you have developed and you think I can just play it off if I can just get home. Because you've deadened yourself to the things of the Lord. Repent. But then believe. You know what's amazing about this is they had all the evidence in front of them to believe in Jesus. Francis Schaeffer tells a story about two men who were hiking and they were going up a mountain and as they were going up, the storm came in. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. I have not, but where you're higher than the lightning, I don't recommend that. I don't have to experience that to tell you I don't recommend that. They're above the storm and 
They begin to make their descent down and they have to get down because they don't want to get stuck if the storm continues. And so they are going down and they come to a place where there's a, a grave fog and they know that to get across they have to jump over this kind of a, a gap. And if they miss the jump, it will not go well for them. They very well could die. And so the first man goes and he says, I'm going to jump and then I'll, I'll call to you to come down. And so he jumps and he lands on the rock and he, he cries out, I am here. It's okay to jump. But the man can't see the other man because the fog is so thick. He, he doesn't know, should I, should I jump or should I not jump? I, I hear him, but can I trust him? See, I think sometimes when we talk about belief, we think belief is jumping into a blind gap of no security. We just think it's, we just have, I just got blind faith. I'm just gonna close my eyes and drive and say, well, Jesus has the wheel. That's not what he's saying. Belief is trusting the one who's already on the rock, even when you can't see the rock. Unbelief is the manifestation of your rejection of the evidence that's right in front of you. For many of you in this room, there's been evidence of the truth of God for a long time. But unbelief is just a slow manifestation of you rejecting what you see right before you. And Jesus says, trust in me today. There's someone greater than the temple. There's someone greater than the prophet Jonah. And there's someone greater than the king Solomon. I am here. Trust and obey. Today, it's as simple as you confessing your sins. Some of you in this room, you are harboring sin and you've refused to confess it because you're embarrassed that you're even in the spot that you're in now. And the only reaction you are doing right now is pushing everybody who is close to you away because you think that's how I'm gonna survive because that's how you've survived all your life. And Jesus says, enough. Someone's greater than all these things right in front of you. Will you take the knee and trust me? Jesus is making this invitation to you. It's now your opportunity to respond to it. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing in response. And you, you deal and do business with God today as you trust and obey. Father, we come, and Lord, we thank you for the chance to gather. Lord, we're asking that as we come to this moment in time where we respond to you, Lord, would you help us to follow you no matter what? Lord, there are some burdens that people are carrying. It's time now to confess those burdens and to make things right. We know, Father, that even as far as we have run from you, the moment we repent, you are standing right there because you never left our side. So, Lord, I'm asking that there be a great sense of repentance today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the chance to open up your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.